The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Um, if you don't have a Bible, that is a gift to you, and we pray that the Lord would use that to reveal more of His goodness and His will to you. Um, a couple of announcements while you're turning. Oh, by the way, you could also put a finger in uh, Matthew chapter 4. We will be there a little bit later. A couple of announcements. Um, First of all, gym floor resurfacing. So um, one of the drawbacks of being a shared facility is that we're a shared facility. And what we mean by that is because we lease this space from Cascade Christian High School, there are things that don't always coincide with our ideal schedule and timing. So as you guys know, we just spent the last two weeks outside because annually they have to do a floor surfacing uh, thing. Um, we're back inside today. You can smell it just a little bit. Yeah, maybe a little. Um, if that's irritating to you in any way, or if you, you know, during the service, I know some people are more sensitive to those things than others. And so if you are, we will not judge you. We will not, no snickering, no nothing. Like that can be real. So if somebody's having a hard time with that, um, the overflow section right outside has video and audio feed of the whole service. And at any time during the service, don't worry about interrupting me. That's fine. Just make your way there and you'll be fine. Um, also, Awana registration. Um, starting August 13th, there's going to be three straight weeks of registration for families at Heritage to be able to um, register your children for the Awana program. Only for the first three weeks for families from Heritage. The reason is, is especially right now with the number of volunteers we have signed up to help this fall, um, we're probably going to be limited on space just because of the pure number of volunteers that we have. Um, and so that space is opened up first to those who are volunteering and helping, as well as the people here at Heritage Christian Fellowship. So um, I just want to give you guys a heads up. That starts um, next week, or no, it started this week. Is that right, Aaron? It started this week. So registration's open. So um, I told that wrong to the first service, so you guys get a head start on that. But um, after service, you're going to want to make sure you get signed up. Um, and just to let you know, as it looks right now, we probably will um, have to cut it off at a certain point unless the Lord provides more volunteers. So maybe pray about that as well. That would be fantastic. Um, and then finally, Pastor's Coffee is next week, right after both services in the coffee shop over here. If you are new or new-ish to Heritage, then uh, that's today. Oops. So I didn't do the pastor's coffee. Oh, no one came. Sweet. All right. <laughs> Apparently I'm hanging out with you guys right after service today. That's awesome. See, the fumes are getting to me. Woo, a little lighter. Um, so after service today, if you are new or newish to Heritage, we would love as a staff the opportunity to be able to say hi and shake hands, answer questions, any of that kind of stuff. So we'll see you right after service. One other thing, we give away books here from time to time here at the church. We only have two rules when we give away books. Rule number one is... You have to read it. Rule number two is you have to pass it along. No dust collection on these. This one you're going to look forward to. Um, I, I got to talk about something really serious in just a minute. So all you guys know jumping at the moment after service, if you would. But this is uh, Jared Wilson's book, The Story of Everything, How You, Your Pets, and the Swiss Alps Fit into God's Plan for the World. It's a fantastic, entertaining, and really interesting kind of big picture view of what God's doing in the world around us. So I highly recommend that. We put that out on social media as well. If you don't get the free copy up front, you can uh, uh, get the title off social media and everything, and that would be great. Um, before we start today's sermon, I have something in particular that I, that I would like to address that I think is appropriate. Um, you don't need to turn there, <clears throat> but in Acts chapter 10... 
There's a guy named Peter, disciple of Jesus, follower of Jesus, one of the early leaders and founders of the church. And uh, he has this vision. Some of you guys know this vision. He has a vision of a big sheet comes down from heaven. Inside the sheet are all sorts of animals. And many of the animals that are inside this sheet are animals that for a Jewish person, historically, they're considered unclean. You're not allowed to eat them. Even associating with these animals is something that would make you ceremonially unclean. There's a much longer story as to why that is the case. But here's all these animals that had once been considered unclean. And they come down in this sheet. And in the vision, we know that this is Jesus speaking to him. Because he even refers to him as the Lord. And he, he says to him in this vision, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter's like, what are you talking about? I mean, our whole history, our whole culture has been on the exact opposite of that. And he's like, Lord, I can't eat of those things. I can't do that because those things will make me unclean. I can't do that. And the Lord responds to him and says, what God has made unclean, or excuse me, what God has made clean, do not call common. Do not say that this thing that I'm now calling clean is something you can't touch, you can't have interaction with, you can't have. About that time, some men show up at the door and they say, Peter, we came looking for you. You got to come with us. And they take him to the home of a tanner, like a hide tanner, someone who is um, dealing with dead animal carcasses, something else that they were not allowed to do, uh, else they'd be considered unclean. And they come in there. And the whole purpose of that trip is that God is, has Peter bringing the gospel to Gentiles, non-Jewish people. People who historically in the church um, or in the Jewish circle of faith were outside of those covenant promises. Peter says to him in that moment, he says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. The Jewish people had been incredibly blessed of God. There was no denying they had been given special favor of God. But the problem is they were supposed to be taking God's favor and using it to spread God's glory. Instead, their mindset shifted and they went from those who had received the favor of God to those who believed they were God's favorites. And they said, we are the ones that God cares about. You outside the circle are unclean. You outside the circle, God has nothing to do with. And Jesus clearly turns the tables on that. So in case you're not tracking with me or haven't figured it out, why are we talking about this this morning? Because of what's going on in our country. As you guys know, uh, many of you, this week there were some people in Virginia, some civic leaders there had a vote and decided to relocate, or as they referred to it, recontextualize some Civil War era statues and move them to a different place for a multitude of different reasons. And a group that refers to themselves as the alt-right movement um, came on Friday night and began to protest. Protests continued into yesterday and have now even resulted in deaths. The alt-right movement, a um, lot of different names for it. You could also say KKK, white supremacist, I'll just call it what it is, demonic. And in this particular moment, as we watch what happens over there, as a group of people stand, some of them claiming to stand on the Bible as they make the decisions they're making and hold up symbols like Heil Hitler, things that were used to execute millions of people, what should the church's response be to that? What should we think when we see those kinds of things? 
I can tell you from having lived there personally, yes, there are a lot of people that will get voices in the media who will say, hey, this is just stuff about our history. This is stuff about our heritage. This is things, whether good or bad, that built into who we are and they should not be forgotten. And there's, there's truth in that. The problem is, and I can tell you from having been there and having had conversations with people that I know and love and have grown up with who hold to some of these things, most of the people, and I would say all of the people in that particular protest that are doing this and claiming heritage, they're not about heritage, they're mourning and fighting over a lost cause that they actually wish was still around. That's just the reality of it. And there's a whole segment of people and you can say that was in the past. You can say you were never slaves. You can say that stuff never affected you. You can say get over it all you want. But there is genuine, real soul and heart hurt that comes over people when they have to deal with some of these reminders of how they and their people have been treated in the past. So what should the church response to it be? A lot of people right now are actually saying, if we talk about this, we're giving these people attention. If we don't give them attention, they will just go away. We should just ignore it and leave it alone. I, I don't see anything anywhere in Scripture that says that when the church sees wickedness, injustice, or evil, that the proper response is to ignore it and hope it goes away. I see lots of things in Scripture that say the church is called to bring light into dark places, to reprove the works of Satan, and to do good and point people to something better, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so with the things that are going on today, you know, well, we're in Oregon, Jeff. So does it have anything to do with the racism going on in Virginia? It doesn't have anything to do, like, what do we do with all this stuff? We have opportunities over and over and over as these things come up around us to teach our children, to share with our coworkers, to encourage one another, to even use platforms like social media that are so often used for hatred and vitriol and arguments to say, Jesus Christ died that all men of all nations and all tribes may be unified in him, not separated. And it is the call of the church as literally calls us ministers of reconciliation. To empathize with those who have hurt. To understand the difficulties that are going on or at least try to. But no matter what, our job, even when we don't understand everything that's going on, is always to point to the goodness, mercy, and unity that is possible in Jesus Christ. We need to take advantage of these opportunities to teach our kids, to teach those around us, and to make sure that the voices out there that are trying to claim their stance and trying to claim that it's based on the Bible somehow are pointed out for what they are. Demonic, wicked, and the absolute opposite of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our job church. So let's do that. Take those advantages. Teach your kids. Let people know there is neither Greek nor Jew. There's neither slave nor free. We are all unified in Christ Jesus. And when this darkness threatens even our own land, let us pray for our land and pray for ourselves and for other gospel people to rise up and point people to something so much better. Not this, but this, pointing people to Jesus. Amen? So let's pray for our country now. Father, we are so thankful that you are a God who heals and unites. We are so thankful that you are a God who takes those who are aliens, who takes those who are different, who takes those who are undeserving, and has washed them by the blood of your precious and perfect son, and has called us to a new nation, 
a new family, a new identity. No longer, Lord, identified by our skin or our race or our ethnic background, our nationality, anything. We are now, Lord, identified as children of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That's the true gospel. Father, we also know that you are a God who takes things that Satan means for evil and uses them for good. We're even going to study this this morning as we look at this topic of suffering and persecution. Lord, when dark times come, it's when your gospel shines the brightest. So I pray, God, in our country, which seems to be just ever more divided than ever day after day, I pray, God, that your gospel would rise forth, that gospel people like us and others would rise up would speak your truth regardless of what thoughts are, would realize these are not political issues, these are not social issues, these are gospel issues, these are moral issues, and the people that are being persecuted against, people that are being um, hated on, all of these things, God, are those who are in need of your grace, who your son died for, as are the persecutors. And I pray you would open the eyes of the blind. And that you would use this wicked and terrible situation to save. You used the cross, a seeming dark, a seemingly dead-end situation. You used it, Lord, to bring life to us. And so we pray you would do the same for this and that you would heal our land. So, Lord, now as we turn our attention to your word, we pray, God, that your will would be done in Heritage Christian Fellowship as it is in heaven. That your spirit would be our teacher that you would comfort, equip, convict, whatever it is that we need, whatever reason we were brought here by your providence, God, may you have your way with us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh, my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name, all God's people said. All right, with that in mind, let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Don't worry, I'm not going to make you guys stand up today because now you're super comfortable probably, or really uncomfortable based on what I said. Either way, I'm not going to make you stand. (coughs) But today we're going to be looking at chapter 1, so let's just read through it. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to replay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus." They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that God may make you worthy of his calling 
and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> well, we're here in Second Thessalonians chapter 1. As you guys know, we're working through these two letters of Thessalonians. The plan is we'll finish these out on Memorial Day weekend. And then the next week, we're going to start walking through the book of Luke, looking at the life of Christ and, and uh, the kingdom of God and some different themes as we go through the book of Luke. So we will only be spending a few weeks in 2 Thessalonians, not quite as much time as we did in 1 Thessalonians, um, partially because some of the things addressed in 1 Thessalonians are not redundant, but things that are further deepening of stuff he's already introduced previously. Um, plus, we don't have to spend a whole lot of time on context because the context here is the same. As you guys know, this is a church that Paul planted. He was only there for about three weeks, maybe a month tops before persecution because of his teaching about King Jesus had inflamed rulers in the area and they had to take him out of town. They had to get him out um, for fear of his life. And then he ended up bouncing to a different town, ends up in Corinth, and he sends someone to check on the Thessalonian church because Paul's always nervous when persecution first comes to a group of Christians. How will they respond? Will they continue to follow Jesus? Or will it be one of those things where it's like, well, I tried Jesus. He didn't make my life better. In fact, it got worse. And so I'm going to go try something different. But the testimony comes back that the church has grown. The church is, is being faithful. The word he keeps using is steadfast. They're standing in the face of opposition. And so Paul's so encouraging. He writes 1 Thessalonians to encourage them and remind them, even in fact, uh, or in spite of all the persecution, the stuff you're going through, the king is coming back. Jesus is going to put things back together. Even people that have died, they're going to rise again. Don't be dismayed. Be steadfast. Continue. Hang in there. And now he writes this second letter to them, um, 2 Thessalonians, here's his second letter to the church, which is written really pretty close to the same time. Most historians believe this letter was written, written well within a year of the actual planting of that church. So it's a very new letter as well, just as the others have. And this church in particular, a lot of people refer to the Thessalonian church as the model church. Um, and the reason they do that is because Paul seems to refer to them as a model church, or he at least um, is very quick to brag about this church to churches all over the place as he's speaking to them. And we see this as they're talking here in the first opening. It's a very Pauline opening where he says, He, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church, he gives grace and peace to you from God the Father. We give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you and, and for one another is increasing. He's seeing their love is growing. So if we... If we ended the story, if season one, if you will, ended at the end of First Thessalonians, now during the gap between, and this is for all you binge watchers, between the gap between season one and season two, things have grown. They're doing better even now than they were before. Their love for one another has grown. Their love for others has grown. Um, and their word and their fame has spread all over the place. He's bragging about people to them. What is it that he brags about? Verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So something key to think about here. The afflictions were going on in the first letter. Just a few months in, persecution came. They were really, Paul was really concerned about what was going on. They were going through difficulty because of their faith. 
Now it's a few months later, somewhere within a year of the actual planting of the church. How are things going now? The afflictions are still going. Things haven't necessarily gotten better. In fact, in all likelihood, things have actually gotten worse. The stuff they were dealing with before is still going on. Paul's letter didn't fix it all. Jesus didn't remove all these things. Now they're still going through this and he is boasting to every church all over the place, pointing to them saying, look at these guys, man. They're still in it. They are steadfast. Even as difficulties come, they are unmovable. They continue to do this. Now, I want to pause for just a second and kind of define the type of persecution they were dealing with um, because it's important for us to understand that we not go too far trying to compare ourselves to every situation that comes up in the Bible. It, it is important that we understand the reality of what's going on and then draw our applications for us personally out of that. So the type of persecution, affliction, and suffering they're going through is not mere bad luck or tough times. This morning, I woke up to a I was so frustrated. So I use this Bible study software. It's called Logos Bible Study Software. It is a really complicated, really in-depth, really expensive Bible study software that's geared towards pastors and seminary students and people that really want to dig. It's a significant learning curve, even learning the software. Massive software. And for some reason, for some stupid reason, last night... Logos decided Saturday night would be a really good time to push through a software update to all of our users. The night before most of the users are going to preach, they pushed a software update to everyone. And when I came in this morning, everything that I had spent some 15 hours on already before I even came this morning was completely inaccessible. Little pinwheel of death, just spinning incessantly. Can't get to nothing. So give me grace if I'm all over the place today. But that's the truth. And I'm emailing them. I'm like calling the tech support hotline. Of course, they're closed on Saturday and Sunday, right? Just so frustrating. Like, who thought that would be a good idea? That's hard. That's difficulty. It is not my cross to bear as a Christian. It's just a bad thing that happened in a fallen world. It wasn't the consequences there of their own doing, by the way, some intentionality that they're now reaping the consequences for. I've told this story years ago. There's a great little um, uh, short story that, that's written that, that you can learn a lot from. I encourage you to look it up, though. I'm going to tell you the whole story right now, so I'm sure none of you will. It's called The Gospel Blimp. And in this story, a group of Christians in a city are trying to think about how can we get the gospel of Jesus Christ out to the whole city that we live in the most effectively. And they go, oh, I have an idea. Let's buy a blimp. And like a football game, let's float the blimp up above the city and we will outfit it with these massive speakers and we will preach the gospel and read scripture to people all the time, all day long when people are out in the city, the gospel will just be going and going and it'll be amazing and people will get saved and will love it. Not so much. In fact, one night, while the blimp is in, it's like, I don't know, hangar, garage, whatever, whatever it is, saboteurs sneak in. They disable the blimp, they disable the speaker system and they make it so that this thing that these churches had all invested their stuff in doesn't work anymore. So the next morning they come in and their reaction was a little bit similar to my reaction this morning with the software. They come in and they're like, oh no, what are we going to do? And they begin the chant, persecution. We're being, we have been persecuted for our beliefs. No, 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 no. You are annoying. And people graciously finally stopped you. 
So it's not that. And it's not just simply life in a fallen world. I have a, I have a cough right now. It's August. It's a billion degrees, it seems, every day, though not today, praise God. I have a cough. That seems so unfair. Like, it just, but that's not, oh, my cross to bear. As Christians get cancer and non-Christians get cancer. That's a result of life in a fallen world. That's not the kind of persecution Paul's talking about. What Paul's talking about in this story has to do with their identity. This city, remember, is a melting pot of people and a business hub. And so people have all flocked to this city to make tons of money because it's a very wealthy city. And they brought with it, as you would imagine, all their cultural background and all their cultural baggage. So there is tons of materialism, tons of greed, tons of idolatry and worship of all sorts of different gods from all sorts of different backgrounds, Greco-Roman gods, all this kind of stuff. There's incredible sensuality and lust and things like that in the city because of some of those pagan practices. There's all this stuff that's going on. And for all the citizens of Thessalonica, this is the culture they live in that they have many grown up in because it's an older city at this point. And so to them, this is what life looks like as someone who is, and this is part of their, if their identity is a Thessalonian, this is what Thessalonians do. So this is part of what our life is. We're living out our culture. But then they get saved. They get saved. And one of the things Paul's always pounding in his theology is this idea of identity, that now they're no longer just citizens of some Thessalonian city, but now they have been saved into the family of God. And their identity has completely shifted. The old part of them is dead, the new man is born, and no longer is there Greek or Jew or slave or any of that other stuff. Now they are sons and daughters of God. And so this new identity takes hold with its new cultural pride. They begin to live the kingdom of God instead of the things that are going on around them. And as that grows, they begin to rub against the culture that's around them in some pretty significant and increasingly difficult ways. Because at first it just looks like prideful, arrogant, we're just not going to participate, we're better than you. In fact, there's, there's evidence in some of the writings that some of the exclusivity, just historically in all of Christianity, frankly, this idea that Christianity is an exclusive religion. Remember, in that culture, there's all sorts of gods. Now this church is saying there is one God. And that still happens today, does it not? Christianity gets pointed at for being exclusive. It's because it is. And it's not because we're pridefully going, nope, we're the only ones that are right. It's, it's because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by him. And so this is what they're experiencing. All these different gods, they're not participating in that. There's family relationships that are going to be affected now as people are going through the familial customs and the religious customs that they have and suddenly people get saved. Now they're not participating in some of the family things that the families have done overall. And as things go on, it would only get worse. But there's another element that happens as well. Christians in these sorts of situations become really easy objects of blame. Because in that system of worship, when you have all these different pagan gods, it's really similar in a lot of ways to elements of the prosperity theology that we love to bang like a hammer on a nail here at Heritage all the time. And here's what I mean by that. There were all these different gods. There's the god of this, the god of this, the god of that, the god of this, the god of that. And in that cultural system, if you, for example, were planting your crops, then you would want to go to the god of 
that thing, whatever the God of farming or whatever it happened to be, however they referred to it, you would go to that God, you would go to that temple, whatever, and you would make sacrifices to it. You would do worship. You would do all these things. And the idea is you're getting the attention of this God. You're showing them, you're, I'm, I'm following you. I'm honoring you. I'm loving you. I'm giving, I'm giving to you in the, in the hopes of getting that God's attention so that he would then return blessing to you for your service. So if I do this, blessings will come. And so if it's, I want to have children, you go to the God of fertility. I want whatever the thing happens to be, you go to that God. But there's a flip side of that that's also true. And that is, if things aren't going well in a certain area, there must be a reason there's something that's happened that you are to blame for that has prevented that God from sending down its blessing. And in fact, may have caused that God to send down curses. So if a natural disaster happens, if your crops don't grow, if there's a drought that year, people would do kind of what we can tend to do even with religion with Jesus at times, right? Something went bad in my life. It must be because I've done something wrong. I need to fix it because if I do the right things, the right things will happen. We can fall into that legalistic trap. But these guys would all, so say a drought comes and Here's this group of Christians who are refusing to worship, who are refusing to sacrifice to these gods. And they became really easy scapegoats to point fingers at and say, the reason we as a city are going through this is because of you. And as all that grew, tension grew, persecution grew, and they could go to the authorities and say, and they're preaching a different king, not Caesar, but this king Jesus. So persecution would continue to grow. So what they're dealing with is, in this story, and this is for biblical interpretation, historical accuracy to understand, the things Paul's writing about when he talks to them about their persecution and their afflictions are things that are the direct result of living out their identity as Christians in the culture that they live in. Do you understand? So it's not that, it means literally, my being a Christian in the world around me is costing me in this way It's not just, uh, oh, it rained on me. I had a bad day. It's the intentional following of Jesus is causing difficulty, despair, and affliction. Now, that being said, the implications of this are pretty broad. Because for us, we may not be experiencing a lot of persecution per se because of our desire to follow Jesus. Maybe I should say, yet. Yet. Things are changing and should, should God, uh, uh, you know, should the return of Christ be put off further and further, then who knows what's going to happen. And I, I pray for revival. We should all pray for revival. But who knows if things change? Who knows what persecution lies in stores for Christian? Who knows how much more relevant texts just like this are going to be for us in the future moving forward? But if you're not, if you're not experiencing that sort of affliction, that sort of persecution, The experience of suffering as children of God, as children of a God that the Bible says is a good, good father, that experience of suffering and difficulty and that lack of, if you will, prosperity and blessing that you feel in seasons, the effects of that and what Paul is saying to these people here um, are still applicable to our situation. Does that make sense? So what they're dealing with is a legitimate um, result of the gospel persecution. And what they're experiencing as a result of that persecution is suffering. 
And while our suffering may not be directly related to that sort of persecution, our experience of suffering, what God is doing in it, and what we can learn through that situation is still the same as what Paul is doing and speaking to the Thessalonian people. Does that make sense, everybody? Say amen if you're with me. If you're not, just pretend. So this is where we're at. So um, this church, in light of all this stuff, is being steadfast. They're, they're steadfast and they're growing. Their love for one another is growing. Even as hate and misunderstanding is on the rise, their love for one another is growing. They're truly living out um, the words that they probably aren't even yet familiar with that say that they will know that you are Christians by your love one for another. They're growing in these things at that time. And that's what sets us apart. But the persecution's still happening. And you know, so many times we can go, okay, the persecution's here. I know what I should do. And we can do it in such a way that we think that in doing that, we will get rid of the persecution. I know that I'm suffering and the suffering's here, but the Bible calls me to do this. And then in our minds, we can think, so if I do this, eventually the suffering will go away. But what if not? At this particular time, it, it hasn't. And all the hope Paul points them to seems to be down the road a ways, potentially. And so Paul addresses this, and he wants them to know two things concerning this. He wants them to know something about the future, and then he wants them to know something about the present. So take a look in verse 5, it says, this is concerning the future. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to replay, repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So here's the thing he wants them to know. First, concerning their future as they're continuing in this affliction, continuing to suffer under the persecution they're there. First thing he wants them to know is, hey, listen, God is a God of love. God is a God of mercy. But God is a God of justice. And one day, those who are afflicting you, God will repay them with affliction. Piggyback this, remember, onto Second Th or First Thessalonians, even chapter 5, which we just finished with. The king is coming. Those who are dead will be brought back to life. This kingdom is real. This king is real, and he is coming. And when he comes, to those that oppose God and his people at that time, he's bringing destruction separation from him, the, the difficulty, the affliction they will go through for eternity because they are enemies and at war with God will pale in comparison to any sort of revenge or justice you could possibly come up with in your own mind here. So trust God. He's a God of mercy, but he's a God of justice. And your affliction is not going unnoticed. This is what he's speaking to them. He also says in there, though, the second thing he's, he's giving them in there is, and when he comes, he will bring rest to those who are afflicted. 
He will bring rest to the afflicted. When he comes, the affliction will stop. The pain will be gone. Death will be gone. Sin, all those things will be no more. God will bring you rest. Take hope in that. He wants them to understand this. If I can use the terminology from some of our uh, people who are completely misguided in their understanding of eschatology and scripture, he gives this in such a way that, hey, you can name it and claim that. See, in our modern-day prosperity theology, we do this. This is what's been taught in prosperity theology, that, hey, are you going through difficulty? Then you have faith issues, and you need to trust in God and claim it, and the blessings will pour out. Does the Bible say that? Yeah, the Bible says blessings are going to pour out. But the Bible says that that ultimate rest is coming. The guaranteed rest that we can absolutely hold on to happens when Jesus returns. And so often, those, it's been said of those who, who spread prosperity theology that, that what they have is an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is the study of end times, the study of last things. And they're saying they're taking things that God has promised for those last days and they're demanding them, promising them, telling others that they can claim those things now. Those scripture clearly says those things are coming. There is rest. There is blessing. There is healing. All of those things that are guaranteed, they are coming, but they're coming when Christ returns. And it is no guarantee that that healing or that prosperity or that that blessing will come now. And so a lot of people go through difficulty and they claim those things. They don't understand the, concept, uh, the context of Scripture. They don't understand fully the promises here. And they know nothing of Paul's teachings regarding suffering. And they claim those things. And then when months go by and that, that cancer's not gone, the job hasn't returned, whatever the affliction is you're dealing with is still there, then people can be left with no faith. And they go, well, you know what? I tried Jesus, I heard what those church leaders had to say, didn't work for me, I'll go do something different. And that's a gross misuse of scripture and something we have to be so careful. We don't wanna teach people to follow Jesus because they're after something from him in the immediacy because we don't know that those things will ever be resolved on this side of heaven. We wanna point them to something greater and more permanent. And so Paul's telling them, he wants them to cling to these things and to say, listen, it's going to be worth it. Hang on there. Justice will come. We will deal with those that are persecuting you. And there is a rest from God that's coming. Know those things about the future. Okay, well, awesome, Paul. But I'm dealing with persecution now, so what do I do now? He's glad you asked. Verse 11, he says this. To this end, we always pray for you that God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you are suffering, if you have cancer, if a loved one has died, if, you know, whatever's going on and you're under just an incredible burden, you're really struggling, and I come up, and that's the only thing I pray, there's a, uh, the only thing that I prayed for you in that moment, there's a really good chance that in that moment, as you're fresh in the suffering, a lot of you would think, that is the worst prayer a pastor has ever prayed for me when I came in. Because what is Paul pray, basically praying here? That they stay in it. Nowhere in this prayer does Paul say, may the burden of suffering be relieved of them. Nowhere in this prayer does he say, may those who are afflicting you die a thousand deaths. 
Or as David even writes in one of his psalms, may their babies be smashed against rocks. That's real. Nowhere in there does he pray for any of those things. What he actually says is, paraphrase, may you stay in that persecution and may God use that persecution to do what he intends to do in you through it. And may you stay in it long enough so that God's whole plan actually comes to fruition. And may the end result of that make God look glorious. That's what he actually says. And the reason he does this is because Paul knows and understands suffering. And, and not just as like a sidebar to our faith. There's a story in Acts chapter 14 where, where Paul's going around, he's doing his church planning thing, and it says in Acts 14, 19, that Jews came from Antioch and Iconium having persuaded the crowds. In other words, some Jewish people came to where Paul is preaching and persuades people like in an uproar, causes a riot, just like what Paul has had to avoid even in Thessalonica. This riot, look at what this guy's teaching. This guy's teaching blasphemy. He's preaching against another king. They get everybody all riled up and they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. I know this is Oregon. We have to clarify that. When they stoned Paul, what they mean is they chucked big rocks at him until it looked like he was dead. And then they drag his lifeless body outside of the city. Let's get this trash out of here is what they're doing. This is what Paul goes through. So what happens? But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. What? He got up and went back into the city where they had just stoned him? I would have bounced. I'm just saying. I would have bounced. I would have left Medford and tried Grants Pass for a while. But no, this is what he does. He goes back in the city. He says, he rose up, entered the city, and on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. They go to the places even where these Jews came from and start preaching the gospel in all these different places. And when he's there teaching these Christians, these unbelievers, what specifically is he doing there? Listen carefully. Strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith, you might say steadfastness, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So think about that. As he's going into these places, part of the foundational, fundamental message of what it means to be a Christian is that, hey, we will have to suffer and go through tribulation to enter the kingdom of God. He makes suffering and difficulty part of what it means to be a Christian. Not something that potentially could happen, something we need. Something we, you will not hear any prosperity people on TBN say this, that suffering and difficulty is something we need, Paul says. That is a far cry from a simple, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. So why would he say that? Because Paul understands that there is purpose in suffering. That there is purpose in suffering. That God uses suffering to sanctify his people. It means to change them from who they were into the image of his son. That God uses suffering to do that, to change people to be more like Jesus and to glorify himself in the world around us. Take a look again at what he actually prays in verse 11 and 12 of 2 Thessalonians. That God may make you worthy of his calling. What's the calling? He's called us to be sons and daughters of God, children of God, part of this new kingdom. 
And so the thing that he's doing through suffering, the prayer is that God may make you worthy of his calling, that that might actually happen. Though our identity is in Christ, you guys know the moment we're saved positionally, we're clean. God looks at us positionally as without sin, but we're still raggedy. We're still a little dirty. We're still dealing with this battle now between an old nature and a new nature. And from the moment we get saved, God through the Holy Spirit is working through us. I should say God the Holy Spirit is working through us and changing us into the image of his son. He's making us worthy of the calling. He's making us look like the sons of God that we are. And that he may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God. So God uses suffering. If, if sanctification is God's will for our life, which the Bible tells us this is what it is, this is the will of God for you that you be sanctified, that we be changed, to be made more and more and more like Jesus every day until the coming when we, when we see him, we will be what? Like him. So on the day when Jesus returns, that work will be finished. And until that day, we're in a process called sanctification where he's chipping away at the old stuff, shedding us of the old identity, and growing us to be more and more like him. If that's the construction project, then Paul knows that the foreman of that project is suffering. That's what God uses to bring these things. Jesus' own brother said this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Who do we know that was perfect and complete, lacking nothing? Jesus. And he says, listen, when trials come for your faith, let those things do their job. Let those things have their way with you so that you may be refined. You'll learn steadfastness, and through that steadfastness, you are going to become more like Jesus. You go, what does that look like? Well, consider Jesus in his early ministry. I asked you to put a finger in Matthew chapter (laughs) 4. Jesus in his early ministry. Look what it says, verse 1. A story many of you know well. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then, The devil took him to the holy city and set him upon the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him. And behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to miss this. 
Jesus is in the wilderness. He's fully human and fully God. And as fully human, if you don't eat for 40 days and 40 nights, you are hungry. And a 40-day hunger is not just hungry. It's not even hangry. You know that? The angry hungry. It's not even that. It's suffering. It's difficulty. The body goes through significant problems when you go that long without food. It is absolute suffering, and he's in the wilderness. There's no in and out nearby. There's none of that stuff. He is alone in the wilderness suffering, and Satan comes to him. Satan comes to Jesus and says, you know, you're pretty hungry. If you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, I want you to think about this. Sometime later, Jesus will be teaching. Sometime later, Jesus will be teaching, and he'll teach about the Father, and he's going to say, which one of you, if his son asks him for a loaf of bread, will give him a stone? He's doing this as he's talking about the fact that God is the good Father that loves and cares for his children. He says, look, any, any decent father, if the son said, man, I'm hungry, I want bread, would never give him a stone. This is the same Jesus who taught us to pray. We were, we were studying this with Russell Moore in, at the Acts 29 conference just a couple of weeks ago, and he really opened my eyes to this, this, this quote I'm going to give you in just a second. He was teaching through the Lord's Supper, and, and he gets to this, this one part, and he, he's speaking about this idea of our, our, give us this day our daily bread. And he's talking about this daily dependence on God, and he warned us. He's like, do not divorce it from its context. What's the context? It starts at the very beginning when the disciples said, Jesus, teach us to pray. He starts by saying what? Our Father. Our Father. Every day, give us our daily bread. Have this daily dependence, trusting in the daily provision of our Father. Because no good dad would give you a stone if you needed and wanted bread. And now he's in the wilderness here in Matthew 4. And Satan comes to him and says, you're hungry, huh? If you're the son of God, then just command these stones to turn to bread. And Jesus refutes him. Later he even says, if you're the son of God, if you're the king that will one day come, all these kingdoms, which by the way, you're not really ruling well right now, Jesus. You're in the wilderness with no food. But all these kingdoms right now can be yours if you just bow to me. And this is what Russell Moore said. By the way, if you are not, if you're not tracking with Russell Moore right now, if you're not reading the articles, if you're not following him on Twitter or any of those kind of things, I I cannot, can I force people, Jeremy, can I force our church to follow Russell Moore? Is that allowed for members? I don't don't know if that's allowed or not, but, but listen, you need to do so. This guy is on the front lines of so many things out there in our culture right now. He's on the front lines of fighting for the purity of the gospel and for gospel morality in our country. And he's taken a lot of hits for it. And by the way, in keeping or in tying this in with what is going on in Charlottesville, um, I want to show you guys this slide. He actually tweeted this just the other day. This right here is a picture that Russell Moore um, retweeted. It came from the Martin Luther King Jr. Institute. He copied it and retweeted it where you can see these white supremacists given the Hail Hitler sign, a sign used for the extermination of 10 million Jews. He shows this, and Russell Moore tweeted that it's evil indeed, agreeing with what they said, satanic in fact. Now, before you show this, i got to tell you guys. So, do you guys, uh, on Twitter, I don't know if you know this, but the little blue check right here means verified. 
So if there's anybody could open up a Russell Moore account, but if it's got the blue check, it means they've gone through whatever steps to prove this is the real guy. And the satanic church has a verified account. The actual satanic church in America has a verified account. Saw this tweet and responded. Take a look at this. They said this, uh, not satanic, please leave us out of this. How bad does something have to be that the satanic church is like, those people are crazy, that ain't us. So if you don't think the alt-right is off base, not even the Satanists want anything to do with them. And that's real. That's real. So Russell Moore's teaching. It's probably a bad time for a joke. Russell Moore's teaching. Here's Satan saying to him, and if you're the son of God, if that's your father, then just command these stones to be bred. And here's what Russell Moore said. We have to understand that Satan's not merely trying to tempt us. He's trying to adopt us. And that just blew me away. He said, Satan is constantly trying to get us to question the provision of God. And in suffering, he has the biggest microphone to do so. And he can say, you think God loves you? Then why are you in this? You think God loves you? What kind of God would leave his kid in this? Satan wants to adopt us. He wants us to doubt the provision of God. He wants us to doubt the goodness of God and turn to anything else other than God for provision. And we have an opportunity in suffering to be like Jesus and to say, no, I'll be steadfast. No matter what comes my way, no matter what I'm lacking right now, no matter what I am dealing with right now, God is enough for me. And if this suffering should stay forever, God is enough for me. A story I haven't told it in years and years, but that always comes to mind when I, when I think about this, is there's a pastor, his name is um, Dwayne Scott Willis. And in 1994 in the Midwest, I, I want to say somewhere around Chicago, if I remember correctly, the Chicago Tribune was this, the newspaper that, um, that told the story the most, so I'm assuming it was in that vicinity. Um, he was driving in a minivan, pastored a small church, um, struggling financially church. In fact, he and his family actually lived in like an upstairs room of the church at the time. And uh, he and his family were in a minivan. At the time, he had six children. Him and his wife, Janet, were in the car and they were driving. And as they were driving along this highway, this one particular night, this piece of metal happened to be in the road. You guys know the mud flaps on 18-wheelers, they have that angled metal piece, tends to like curve down a little bit, and it's what holds the mud flap on. So something as simple as that. How many of us have driven by millions of those things through the year, but one of those had come off, and it's laying in the road. The car just happened to drive over it. The piece of metal just happened to pop up, just happened to puncture the gas tank. The car immediately engulfed in horrific, unpenetrable flames. Careens off, slams into the, to the rail on the side. A couple of people are ejected from the car. Scott, his wife Janet, and their oldest son are able to get out of the car. And then they have to sit there by the side of the road while this van is engulfed in flames and they can literally hear the cries of all the rest of their children. Elizabeth, excuse me, Joe Willis was 11, Sam Willis was 9, 
Hank Willis was seven. Elizabeth Willis was three. Peter Willis was six weeks old. Ben Willis, the other kid who did make it out, died in the hospital the next day. They, the nurse later said that he knew he was going and he understood what was about to happen, and he asked the nurse to hold his hand while he went, but the burns were so severe that she couldn't do it because it caused him too much pain. And when that happened, here's the thing. Suffering and difficulty for us, and not trying to be, use a pun to use a fire analogy, but it, it is where God forges the human heart. Understand this, because when, when the human heart in its natural state, it is cold, it is hard, the scriptures even tell us. But there's something about going through difficulty that softens it just like a piece of steel and makes it moldable. But it doesn't just soften and mold our hearts. It softens the hearts of people around us and suddenly gives us an opportunity to speak. Because people, even the most ardent atheists, even people who cannot stand Christianity, when bad enough things happen, they'll at least tune in. They'll at least listen and they'll watch to see what happens. And so in that story, that's what happened. A news article went out even the next day. It was a huge story. And they went and found people from the church and tried to interview them to ask them about you know, their, their feelings on it, their, their relationship with the family, all these different kinds of things. And they, the, the article's still out there online. I read it myself yesterday. They, they found this one lady. And they were asking her about it, and she knew the kids. She taught them in Sunday school, all this kind of stuff. So she was grieving and mourning just like they were, obviously. And they asked her how that was going to affect her coming back to the church and her relationship with God and all those kind of things. And she literally says in the article, I don't think I can ever go back in that church again. We, we understand her heart. There is grace. It had just happened, all those kind of things. But, but if, if that's the heart that continues... That's not steadfastness in faith. That is a prosperity theology that says, I will only follow God as long as good things happen. But if something bad enough happens, I'm going to question my faith in him, and I just can't go there anymore. It's, it's the one who then says, God can't be good, because look at what he's allowed to happen. But there's a flip side of that in the same story. Because you see, Scott and Janet both went through severe, severe burns. They had third-degree burns on their arms, face, back, all over the place. It was a terrible accident. Sometime later, there was a press conference. And they came in front of everybody else, and, and people wanted to ask the story, so they did one big press conference so they could kind of tell that story. And it was a very tearful press conference. It was a very mournful situation. It was a horrible, horrible ordeal. And they were clearly reliving it through some of the stuff. It was very hard. And Janet was weeping as they were talking. And, and she told how in that moment they were asking her what was going through your mind. You know, the questions that reporters ask. And I understand they have to ask it, but it just seems unfair. Because they're, they're saying, what was going through your mind as you watch your kids burn? What kind of question is that, right? But she gracefully answered. And she talked about how she was just wailing and mourning because she's losing her children. But, but she said her husband was whispering into her ear in that moment as that car was engulfed in flame trying to comfort her. And so they asked her, what did he say? And what he said has blown my mind forever. As they watch five of their children dying and another one, unbeknownst to them at the time, dying right beside them, he was whispering into her ear, this is what we've been preparing for. And he understood. He would go on later, he would say, we knew these are God's children, these aren't ours. 
And for however long God should trust us with these children, that's fine. Our responsibility is to just be faithful messengers of the gospel from then on out. And he understood this. He understood that you don't get Pauline depth without Pauline pain. He understood all the things that prosperity gospel misses. And you go, but that's still, that's too much pain. That's just too much hurt. How can that be worth it? Because if you go today and Google a story that happened in 1994 before we even had internet stuff, it comes up over and over and over. And there's a 10-year anniversary story and report. There's a 15-year anniversary story and report. There was just a 20-year anniversary story and report. Their children that they went on to have later grew up to become musicians and have literally been given a recurring opportunity to play music at the Grand Ole Opry and tell the story about what their family went through. And the story of Jesus has gone all over the place because of the suffering. Because, see, they knew God's going to grow us through this, and he's going to make us more like Jesus, who said, if there's any other way that this cup can be taken from me, nevertheless, not my will, but thine, because they knew that the suffering he was about to go through was going to result in life for us. So Pastor Scott knew, my God is good. I don't need to, count to question his provision. And what he's doing now is going to change me and make me more like Jesus, and it's going to bring life out of what Satan meant for good. So church, this is our response to those things. So man, I would love to come up here and give you a story with all kinds of reasons why we suffer. And the reality is, all you have to do is read the book of Job to know sometimes you're not going to know. But we can have confidence in suffering that results in steadfastness because we know God loves his kids. And he does not turn his back on his children. And what God is doing, we may not understand right now, but help is coming. The suffering does have an end date. And healing is promised in God's time. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine. Your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We will do what God, we will want to be faithful to God and stand in him and just trust that even in the worst situations imaginable that we might have to go through, there are opportunities for us to realize that even our suffering softens the hearts of people around us and we can share and plant that seed in hearts that were too hard to receive that seed otherwise. It's, ha it's happened in Stephanie's story, guys. The suffering that Stephanie has and is going through. One of, this is so, can I say this? Am I allowed? Yeah. One of the ER or CC or what? The, the C, one of the CCU charge nurses came to Heritage for the first time. Last service. Last service. Just so happens to be this sermon, right? God knows what he's doing and he loves his kids and he's there. And we don't need to question his goodness. We don't need to question his provision. We trust in a God that is so good that he would go so far to deal with our sin that he would allow his only son to die on our behalf. That is the part we look back to because we know if God would go to that length to save me, he'll take care of me in all this as well. And then we'd be steadfast. Amen, church? Will you stand with me and let's pray. Listen, we are not masochists. 
We are not people that go, oh, it's better to hurt and bruise. Let's just, how can I make myself hurt the most? We are not that. But we are people that when God providentially brings difficulty our way, we can trust him. And we can mourn. I mean, mourn when your children die. Mourn when these sorts of things happen. But as he said in the first letter, we mourn not as those who don't have hope. Our king is coming. Justice will prevail. Rest will be there. And in the meantime, even these things, well, the Bible does promise us, don't it? All things work together for good for those who love the Lord and what? Are called according to his purpose. So may God give us the faith to be faithful and worthy of that calling. God, I pray right now. In this room, there are people that are coming out of suffering as we speak. There are people that are in the midst of suffering. And then the rest of us are probably headed towards some form of suffering. And I just pray for your grace on our lives. That we would keep our eyes so focused on you, Jesus. That when the tempter comes to adopt us, to call us away from the provision of our Father, may we look to you and realize you are so good. You are better than a father that gives bread to a child that wants bread. You have made us joint heirs with Jesus. You have given us everything. And you're coming again. So God, make us strong. And where we're not, Lord, may your grace be sufficient. Will you prop us up? And then, Lord, will you give us that sense of calling to help us understand that it is in suffering that we have a megaphone for your grace. And may we take advantage of it. May we use what Satan meant for evil to do good. May you do that through us. And may we have hope during suffering to remember that you're coming and that you're good. But we'll say this too, Lord, to that end. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Heal us, we pray. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.